Before we dive into this episode of HRD Masterclass, I'd like to take 30 seconds to share the exciting news that we're now seeking sponsors for Season 5 to release in 2024. This is a wonderful opportunity to support the podcast series and also share your message with 3,500 HRD listeners around the world. Sponsorship options cost just $750 and $600 per episode, and for full details, contact D-A-R-R-E-N at allbypodcast.com. Right, let's start the episode. The clever man will tell you what he knows. The wise man encourages you to discover it for yourself. Since he seems to give you nothing, we have no need to reward him. Thus, the wise have disappeared and we are left in a desolation of the clever. Welcome to Human Resource Development Masterclass, the podcast series from the Academy of Human Resource Development, the organization that leads HRD through research. I'm your host, Darren Short, and throughout this second series, I'll be joined by leading authors, researchers, and scholars to explore the fundamentals of HRD and how those are changing in the 2020s. Our focus for this episode is action learning, and we'll be looking at what action learning is, examples of action learning, how action learning differs from other forms of learning, how to introduce it into organizations, what makes it so powerful, and much more. To help me, I'll be joined by two leading scholars, Dr. Michael Marquardt, Professor Emeritus of Human Resource Development and International Affairs at George Washington University in the United States, and Dr. Cheryl Brook, Senior Lecturer in the Faculty of Business and Law at the University of Portsmouth in the United Kingdom. In the first part of the episode, I'll chat one-to-one with each of them, and then for the second part, Mike and Cheryl are together to explore their shared interest in action learning. This episode is brought to you with the help of the generous support of our sponsor, WILE, the World Institute for Action Learning. All of the content you'll hear in this episode was recorded during September and October of 2021. Right, let's dive in to meet our guests. Here in the first section of the episode, I'll meet one-to-one with each guest. This section is brought to you thanks to the sponsorship support of WILE, the World Institute for Action Learning, the leading certifying body for action learning. While action learning is a powerful problem-solving process that has the amazing ability to simultaneously develop leaders, teams, and organizational capability. It involves a small group working on real challenges, taking action, and deliberately learning as they go. It positions an inquiry and questioning mindset at the heart of the organization's development culture. WILE currently has over 500 coaches actively using this methodology in more than 30 countries. Get in touch with WILE today. You can find out more at their website, www.wial.org. My first guest for the episode is Dr. Michael Marquardt, Professor Emeritus of Human Resource Development and International Affairs at George Washington University. Mike was a co-founder and first president of the World Institute for Action Learning, WILE, and now serves as the chair of the WILE Global Advisory Committee. Mike is the author of 26 books and over 100 professional articles in the fields of leadership, learning, globalization, and organizational change. 
Over one million copies of his publications have been sold in nearly a dozen languages worldwide. Dr. Marquette's achievements and leadership have been recognized through numerous awards, including the International Practitioner of the Year Award from the American Society for Training and Development and the Scholar of the Year Award from the Academy of Human Resource Development. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the Human Resource Development Masterclass. It's great to have you here in our episode focused on action learning. Well, it's great to be here, and I look forward to this podcast and working with Cheryl Brooke on this important topic of action learning. So then, Mike, how about we start by exploring what is meant by the term action learning and what's the history of that term? Well, action learning briefly defined is where you have a group of people who are learning while they're in action. So they're given a problem that they need to come up with strategies and they learn how to work together. Uh, and, and learn leadership skills as, as they do this uh, project development. And so there generally are three learning components to action learning and three action components. So in action learning, uh, various forms of action learning around the world, but they all seem to be generated around an urgent and important problem. A group of people, ideally four to eight people who are tasked to solve this problem, and they come up with actions and strategies that are implemented by the group itself or are given to the organization to implement. And there's also three learning components to action learning. One is the, the way action learning works is the, the use of questions because the recognition that questions help the group not only be more creative, but they learn from each other by asking each other questions. A uh, second learning component is that the group knows when they come together that they are there not only to solve the problem, but to develop their leadership skills. And a third component of action learning is that uh, there is a person in the group or outside the group who is responsible to help the group learn. This person may be called a facilitator, an advisor, a guide, or a coach. Uh, recognition that when a group is working on an urgent problem, unless you have some person responsible for learning, oftentimes the learning gets swallowed up by the action. There is no time set aside for learning and to improve how they work as a team. Uh, historically, uh, action learning <clears throat> began about uh, 60 or 70 years ago. A uh, founder of action learning, a person named Reg Revens, uh, was working in the coal mines in Wales. And uh, typically, they had problems with you know, productivity and motivation, uh, morale among the workers. And typically, you would bring in an expert to look at the, the mine and talk to the workers and make recommendations. And Reg Revan said, no, he was going to try something different. He would ask the miners themselves to come up with strategies. And, uh, and they would ask each other questions and uh, you know, try to get the best ideas and experience from the coal miners. His belief being is that the coal miners experience the problems within the mine every day. They have perspectives an outsider would not have. They have a much keener interest in what strategies are eventually uh, accepted because they have to live and uh, operate under those practices, uh, strategies that, they, that emerge. And so Reg began developing this concept of a group of people working on urgent problems and using questions. Uh, uh, the next place he, uh, he took was worked in the hospitals in London. And another, I guess, uh, method he added to our strategy, he brought in people from different perspectives. So instead of just talking to doctors on how to improve the hospitals, in London, he brought in the, the nurses, the janitors, 
And he recognized that if you brought in different perspectives, uh, they were much more creative and came up with better strategies than he just had people who were uh, working in that area or were experts in that area. And so Reg was kind of a founder and probably the only person doing action learning in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Uh, when I first got engaged with action learning in the early 90s, there were only a few organizations around the world that used action learning. It was primarily in academic settings, uh, universities, particularly in England, that uh, used action learning. Uh, but over the last uh, 25 years, action learning has blossomed and has now become the perhaps the number one way around the world in which uh, leadership development occurs is through action learning. You mentioned that you got into action learning in the 90s. Um, how did you get into it? And then what sort of action learning work have you done over the last 30 years? Well, it's interesting how I got into action learning. I uh, had worked globally in the areas of leadership development, team building, and organizational change. And in 1994, I became a professor at George Washington University. Uh, and we had an executive doctoral program in which we had 20 to 25 executives from around the world that would come for one weekend a month for two and a half years of coursework, and then they would work on their doctoral research. And so as I entered that program, the director of the program said, uh, Mike, uh, we have a course for you to teach. Uh, the previous professor is retired and uh, we'd like you to teach it. The course is called Action Learning. <laughs> I did not know what Action Learning was. I said, oh my gosh. But you know that, that was my uh, assignment. Uh, I said to the director, I said, you know, is there a syllabus, a textbook? And he gave me an early book that Reg Revens wrote and much of what Reg, Reg Revens wrote, wrote was a little bit difficult to understand. There was a lot of uh, uh, complexity to it. Uh, the syllabus looked pretty good. And what I did is uh, follow the syllabus in which I broke the groups, and, uh, the 25 students into five uh, groups. And each group, someone within the group would identify a problem he or she had in their organization. And the other four would uh, uh, help try to solve that problem, develop strategies. At the end of this, the semester, they would write a paper and make a presentation about you know, the problem they worked on, the strategies they developed, and how they worked as a team and what they learned. And I became very excited by it. I said, you know, this is the most powerful tool I've ever seen in terms of how quickly people come up with some great strategies and they worked well as a team. And, uh, but I realized also quickly that it would not work in non-academic settings because to take the time to, to learn, to write a paper, to uh, reflect on what you've, you've learned and share it with others uh, only occurs in an academic setting unless you make some changes in how action learning was being practiced uh, until the 1990s. And so one of the things that I uncovered and others began doing as well, you needed someone in the, in the action learning groups which occur in organizations, corporations, who was responsible for the learning and to make it as clear and simple as possible. And so that's what got me involved in action learning. And so over the past uh, you know, 30, 25, 30 years, I've worked with over a hundred organizations in every part of the world, uh, government agencies, nonprofits, community-based organizations, corporations. A few examples, uh, I think my early work in action, I did a lot of work with Boeing uh, in Seattle and uh, they had begun using some of the action learning that had been developed uh, by an internal person. They asked me to help continue to develop their action learning. And so we had some major multi-billion dollar projects uh, and we brought in, uh, generally they had uh, 20 uh, of 
senior leaders, high potential leaders that would work on these action learning projects over a 30 day period. Uh, they would receive some basic instruction with how action learning worked and what it was. And then they would go off to Australia or China or whatever and work uh, for a week or so to uh, come up with the strategies and submit them to the, uh, uh, the top people in Boeing for, for, for action. Most recently, I've worked uh, extensively with the International Red Cross. There are uh, 192 national societies. Every country has a Red Cross. And particularly during the pandemic, they are having difficulties in terms of fundraising, getting volunteers. And so I've been involved in action learning groups with a number of national societies of Red Cross, as well as the uh, headquarters staff in Geneva. And they've made action learning a very important part of, uh, uh, of the Red Cross throughout the world. So you clearly have a depth of experience around action learning. Do you have an example from your own action learning experience that would illustrate how an action learning project works? I worked with Sony Music uh, a few years ago. And so they identify a problem, which uh, oftentimes I, as the action learning coach, I may vet the problem, be sure it's an urgent problem, a complex problem, because the more urgency in the problem, the more the team will want to have, have energy to get it solved. And the more complex it is, the more the group has to learn from each other, become smarter. So the problem that Sony Music had was that there was a declining revenue coming from uh, music. Uh, uh, 20 years ago, you would, you know, you, 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 the artist would produce a, a song and it'd be sold on records and you know, millions of dollars of records may be sold. But more recently with Spotify and iTunes and so forth, there was less money going to the artists and to the recording, Sony recording company, because uh, there just wasn't as many sales. So they said, we need a, an action learning team to look at this. And so they identified uh, six people from different parts of Sony and then one person from outside of Sony that were given this problem. And uh, over a three day period, uh, uh, each day they worked for two or three hours and they brought in some uh, occasionally they'd bring in outside people to answer questions. But these six people at the end of the three days came up with the concept of a, a, a complete contract or a, a super contract so that any new artists or uh, returning artists, when they worked with uh, Sony Music, they would sign a contract which says that we not only record your music and sell it on records, but we manage your tours, uh, we manage your merchandise, we manage getting your music on television and radio uh, and movies. So Sony having that tremendous global presence, uh, instead of having a, a high school buddy manage their tours, they had a professional global you know, promoter. Uh, instead of selling a few products in local stores, they could use giant you know, stores and uh, online uh, sources from around the world. So that as a result of this, uh, these ideas, uh, the revenue increased for Sony Music and for each uh, artist. And uh, singers, artists wanted to come to Sony as their, their recording or uh, music uh, source of, uh, of, of that was best for them. So uh, that's an example. But typically, it's actually works. You have an urgent problem. The group is given the urgent problem. They have the power to come up with strategies. 
they meet. It's very important that the group remains intact. So it's five, seven people that all five or seven people are present for whatever number of meetings they have. Uh, sometimes action learning is very urgent. You have only one session to get it completed because by the end of the day, the strategies need to be implemented. More typically, an action learning project is complex. Uh, it involves uh, a lot of information, ideas you get within sessions and between sessions. So a typical action learning project might be uh, three or four meeting sessions of two or three hours each that occur over a four to six week period. Uh, typically, an action learning project never goes more than two or three months because the group changes too much or the problem is not urgent if it doesn't need to be resolved within two months. What is it you think that distinguishes action learning from other forms of action and from other forms of learning? I think the key difference, you know, the, uh, the they're, they're, action learning is a problem-solving group, and, there, and there's every organization has thousands of problem-solving groups in, in a typical year. And so what action learning problem-solving group is different from a typical problem-solving group is that there's an emphasis on learning as well as on action. So that the, the group is there to solve the problem, and, uh, but they recognize that if we can learn as a group, we can solve this problem quicker and better. But if we can also learn while we solve this problem, we can use those skills and those strategies throughout the organization. So solving the problem may be worth a million dollars to the organization, but if they can develop a high performing team, they can develop five or six great leaders who are in that organization for multiple years working on many you know, hundreds of projects, that action learning session may be worth a billion dollars to the organization. So the key difference is there's an emphasis on learning. The group members know that when they join the group, they have to learn how to work better as a team for the immediate benefit of solving this problem. And they have to develop their leadership skills as well as identify how their action and strategies can be applied elsewhere. And so there's a recognition of that learning. And uh, uh, so that, that and action learning uses all types of learning. There's behavioral learning, there's cognitive learning, social learning, there's different schools of learning and action learning has the ability to incorporate all the schools of learning. So what is it do you think that makes action learning so powerful? I think the key thing is first who you put in, first it's it, because it's an urgent problem, there's a lot of energy and action and need to learn. Uh, so that adds power. Uh, urgency always makes action more likely and, and important action likely. Second, you try to get a, a diverse group of people with different perspectives, with different backgrounds, different interests, different skills, uh, asking each other questions. So you get the, the benefit of different ways of thinking with people with different kinds of experiences. So they're much more able to understand the system so they can understand the complete problem better. They can get to the root of the problem better. They are much more creative. Uh, we know that if it's a simple problem, expertise is more valuable, you know, solving a puzzle or you know, fixing a machine or whatever. But the more complex a problem is, the less valuable is expertise and the more valuable is diversity and different perspectives. So asking fresh questions with people with different perspectives it always helps, the group is always able to see the big picture better, they see the entire system, they're much more creative than they would in any other way. Uh, and so the, 
that what makes it so powerful is the diversity and the questions that occur. And you talked a bit in your answers about the significance of the problem that's being solved. And so I'm wondering, what is it about that problem or the situation in an organization that makes it a good candidate for using action learning? Well, one of the things about action learning, and I, I'm kind of an advocate of this, every organization in the world could benefit from action learning because every organization in its day-to-day -day life uh, is experiencing challenges, competition, loss of personnel, uh, new technology, whatever the case may be. So uh, every organization can benefit from action learning. And every organization, of course, needs to develop their leaders. They have to work better in teams. And so uh, the important thing for action learning is that the problem has to be urgent and important and that the organization has a need to get this problem solved because if it does not get it solved, it may lose business, it may go under, it may lose people, uh, it may lose profits, whatever it may be. So it's important that it's an urgent problem and that who, when they're given the urgent problem, the group that's given the urgent problem, oftentimes the group uh, within the group is not the person who may be the senior person, the director, the CEO who, who implement it. But it's important that the uh, group knows that their strategies, their ideas are going to be implemented. So they have a, an accountability and a, a, a energy and an expectation that allows them to be you know, more energetic and creative. But to me, every organization has the potential of being a great organization to utilize action learning. So I'm interested there about the impact of organizational culture on action learning. Are there particular organizational cultures that would find it more difficult to implement action learning? One of the things about action learning is it creates its own culture. Within the action learning group, you have its own culture because of the norms of uh, you know, using questions, of learning as well as taking action. Uh, my experience is that the first 20 or 30 minutes of action learning can have different challenges of different cultures. Some cultures you have to be listen a little more, listen a little more rather than you know, talking and dominating. Other cultures you have to make the effort to become engaged. You're responsible uh, no matter what your rank in that group might be. And so, but the norm created and the culture created within the action learning group brings out the best of every person and, and can uh, operate effectively in every culture uh, because all cultures, uh, people want to be helpful, people want to be respected, they want to be able to uh, solve something that is urgent, important to them or to their friend or their organization. When you introduce action learning into different cultures, um, there are some challenges. Uh, one of the key aspects of action learning, you have to be willing and able to ask questions of each other. Now, in some cultures, it's difficult to ask questions of a superior. And so uh, I've worked in Korea, for example, where the, uh, I have to advise the, the Korean manager who's in the group and say, before we begin action learning, could you say the following to your, 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 your group mates here? And so the manager says, now normally when we work on a problem, you wait for me to, to decide what to do or tell you what to do. But we have a challenge here. Uh, I don't have all the answers. I need you to ask questions. I want you to ask questions of me and I'm gonna ask questions of you. Well, very quickly, the, the Korean culture, which is prevalent outside of that action learning group, changes because questioning is a global value. Uh, whether you're from Korea or China or Germany or Brazil, 
when you're with your friends, you ask questions all the time. Uh, when you're outside of your office, you, that's, that's the way we build friendships. That's the way we communicate. But when we get into a problem inside an organization, the use of questions doesn't happen until we create a new culture and actually where questions occur. So to wrap up this first segment of the episode, um, I'm interested in what you would view as the main benefits to individuals and organizations of using action learning. Well, I, for me, there are five major benefits. Uh, historically, the, the, the primary benefit was having an urgent problem solved, a complex problem solved. And as the problem became more and more complex in our, in our, in our turbocharged uh, environment, uh, we discovered that the more that some problems are so complex and so difficult that only a, an action learning group can fully understand it and come up with sustainable creative strategies. So the, the, the most powerful and, and initial benefit of action learning is to work on getting a, a complex problem solved. The other uh, aspect of action learning, which is the most common use of action learning, is leadership development. Uh, most organizations around the world use action learning. They use it to develop their high potential leaders, but it's the best way to develop leaders because uh, within an action learning group, you have to solve problems with a group of people uh, over whom you may not necessarily have any control. You have to be creative. You have to be able to build the team and so forth. So every leadership skill can be developed while you are working in an action learning group. A third benefit of action learning is the development of groups. Most of us know that our experience has been that groups are very dysfunctional. And so action learning can take any group of people, five people who are strangers, never been together before from five different countries, or five people who've been together for 20 years and hate each other. Within 30 minutes, they're both types of uh, groups are functioning at a very high level because the norms and culture is so strong, they start behaving in a very positive, supportive way. The fourth benefit of action learning is that organizations know they have to continually improve, they have to change their culture, they have to continuously learn, become learning organizations. And the best way to build a learning organization is through action learning groups. Uh, trying to build a learning organization from top down in which the CEO or the leader says, we're going to become a learning organization and puts out a policy, we got to learn. Learning doesn't happen from above. Learning only happens when you are involved in a small group of people solving an urgent problem for which you are accountable. Because a learning organization is simply defined as an organization that continuously improves. It improves its products, its services, and everything. And, it, and every action learning group, one of the final things you do at the end of every action learning group is what have we learned in this group? What ideas have we had in this group that we could apply to our organization? And the fifth benefit of action learning, it changes the community served by the organization because an organization is dependent upon its customers, its citizens, its community. And so uh, action learning enables that organization to have much greater impact and interaction with the community and, and beneficial uh, impact with the community. Well, that feels a really great way of wrapping up this first segment of the episode, Mike. Thank you so much indeed for all of your time today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for your great questions. Well, please stay with us and we'll have you back later in the episode for our group conversation. But until then, thank you so much, Mike. Thank you.
My second guest for the episode is Dr. Cheryl Brooke, Senior Lecturer in the Faculty of Business and Law at the University of Portsmouth. Cheryl is a former senior manager, having worked in the National Health Service and the third sector prior to moving into higher education. She completed her PhD in Management Learning at the University of Lancaster in August of 2010. Her thesis was on the development and practice of action learning in the UK NHS. Cheryl's research interests include action learning, work-based learning, and employee volunteering. She's published in a range of journals, including Human Relations, Human Resource Development International, Teaching in Higher Education, and the European Journal of Training and Development. Cheryl is currently co-editor of the journal Action Learning, Research and Practice and she is a Senior Fellow of the Higher Education Academy. Hi Cheryl, welcome to the Human Resource Development Masterclass. It's great to have you here in our episode focused on action learning. Thank you very much, Darren. I'm very much looking forward to talking to you and to talking with Michael Marquardt. Well, in thinking about a good place to start, I was reflecting on how there appear to be a lot of ideas of what action learning is and how it works. And so I was wondering what action learning is to you. And as part of that, whether you view it as a philosophy or as a method. Well, for me, um, action learning combines uh, an opportunity for self-development with um, real action for change. So it starts with a problem, either an individual problem that someone's got or one that's collectively owned, and then working in small groups, what, what's sometimes called in action learning jargon sets, people tackle these important pressing problems or challenges, and they learn from their attempts to change things in the workplace. So the task becomes the vehicle for learning. Now, Reg Revens, the originator of action learning, said that learning is cradled in the task. And so people working on this problem or task have to have the power and the responsibility for taking action on that particular problem. Revens even said, and I think the ABC of action learning, that there should be a penalty for failure. In other words, um, making progress on the treatment of the problem should really matter to the individual, to the team, to the organisation at large. So for me, action learning begins and ends with a purpose and is driven by questions. Questions are absolutely central to action learning. And the opening question is most likely to be something like, uh, what am I trying to achieve? What am I actually trying to do here? And the interesting thing for me about action learning is that it can be found in all sorts of organizations, all sorts of contexts. Uh, it's, a, it's a very adaptable, what's sometimes called a context sensitive practice. So in the UK, it's often found in the public service, in the NHS, in social services, in voluntary organisations and in community settings. And it does find a good fit with managers. And I think that's because they're the ones who are often charged with having to sort out the, the messy, confusing, ill-structured problems faced by organisations. And as Revens himself said, the essence of action learning is to pose increasingly insightful questions from the beginnings of ignorance, the origin of ignorance, risk and confusion. Now, you asked, is action learning a method or an ethos? And that's a very interesting question. Um, and I think the answer can't be found in any kind of um, empirical analysis, but requires a reference back to what the purpose of action learning is 
and to the values of those who are practicing it. So when I started doing research, one of the first projects I got involved with was one that was initiated by uh, Mike Pedler and John Burgoyne, who were my PhD supervisors. And we were looking back then, uh, the beginning of 2003-04, at what has action learning learned to become? And this was especially in the field of management education. And one of the questions we asked was, is it best seen as a method with some defined and easily describable processes? Or is it an ethos? Is it a philosophy with a set of more abstract principles not attached to any kind of particular form or practice? And what we found back then was that as an ethos, it had spread more generally in uh, the management education and development community. And it led us to thinking about what we then termed Revan's classical principles. And those were things like the requirement for action as the basis for learning, working with problems and not puzzles, working in a set of peers, what Revan's called comrades in adversity, and the use of fresh questions, taking primacy over P or expert knowledge. P for Revan's was programmed instruction or expert knowledge. There's a very interesting article that I often return to by an American writer called Verna Willis, and she writes about the Revan's gold standard being based on some 23 indicators. And she talks about practices that are less like action learning and more like action learning. And at the more like action learning end of the continuum, she talks about self-organizing, self-managed action learning sets. And I think uh, that's there where, where there was, and perhaps to some extent still is, an interesting debate around is a facilitator necessary for action learning to work? So Revan said there had to be what he called an accoucheur, a literally male midwife, someone to induct the set, but then they should gracefully retreat at some uh, point soon after and let the sets act independently. So in answer to that question, I would say that action learning is only well-defined at the level of values and principles, which allows it for um, almost infinite methodological interpretation. Uh, my own view now, incidentally, on the facilitator question is that sets do tend to work better with someone acting as a set advisor, a coach, a facilitator, a set manager, whatever term you, you want to ascribe to it. But it has to do two things, or that role has to do two things. To make sure the set is making space for learning and reflection, and that the set is leading with questions. And then secondly, to manage the mechanics of it or help support the mechanics of it, that people get equal airtime, uh, that people abide by agreed ground rules and so on. So how did you first get interested and involved in action learning? Um, well, this was um, back in the 1990s, the mid-1990s. I was then working in training and HR for a large teaching hospital in the north of England. And we developed a partnership with the University of Salford, which at that time housed something called the Revan Centre for Action Learning. And one of the earliest things I recollect being involved in was a, a very interesting exercise. In fact, for the, for the purposes of this discussion, I dug, I dug out my notes, which I kept of that event. And it was a, a, a joint event with the university, which uh, visiting American and Canadian students took part in. And it was an exercise with us in the hospital to explore using an action learning approach, some of the hospital's most pressing challenges. Um, and we gave them background presentations from our senior managers, 
things like, you know, what are the drivers for change within the health service and what are the key issues in terms of our performance in league tables and what's our strategic direction. And um, I managed even at that time to get the chief executive, the chairman uh, and the senior management team involved. It was a chairman at that time. Um, and then the students worked in sets on these issues and they were serious problems. Things like how do we increase our activity while, you know, looking to potentially downsize the organisation? Uh, how do we show clinical areas the benefits of marketing? Um, and the thing that struck me uh, at that time was the sheer volume of really powerful questions. It wasn't the solutions that stayed with me necessarily, but the questions. Why are you changing? Why are you doing this? What are your priorities? What are the key changes that the uh, hospital faces? What's not negotiable? What does success look like? Um, and it, it really changed my view of how management education could be, that we could lead with questions, that we could look at current problems that we were facing. And then I remember at the end of all this, a rather, uh, a rather small, very well-spoken elderly man coming up to me and talking to me about this event. And that was my introduction to Reg Revens. And so after that, I, I really became hooked on using action learning. It almost became my, my working discipline as, a, as a, a trainer and management educator, leading to me doing a, my PhD on action learning in the NHS, which was supervised by Mike Pedler and, and John Burgoyne, who were uh, very, very active and still are in, uh, in the world of action learning. So in the conversation with Mike, and, and I guess in the way we've started here, I'm conscious that when I've talked about action learning, I almost talk about it as if it's a single approach. But I'm wondering whether there are, in fact, different forms of action learning. And if so, what some of the main differences are between those different forms? Yes. Um, when when John Burgoyne, Mike Pedder and I wrote our paper on what has action learning learned to become back in 2005, at that time, we identified and we wrote about six forms, which we said reflected different circumstances. And we thought some of them were quite radical manifestations of action learning at the, at the time. And the question for us was, uh, were these dilutions of Revan's classical principles or, or were we talking about evolutions? Um, Yuri Boschik, who's a, a scholar and thinker on action learning and has written a lot about the, the topic, suggests uh, that there are now some 38 different forms of action learning around the world. Um, and he's listed forms such as critical action learning, business-driven action learning, self-managed action learning, virtual action learning, and so on and so forth. In terms of the differences between them, um, I think some of it, probably quite a lot of it, is to do with the extent to which action learning uh, is a self-managed or a facilitator-led process. So a, a form called critical action learning, which I think is more common in the UK than it is anywhere else, um, but I'm happy to be corrected on that. That came about as the result of a critique of conventional action learning practice. And the idea there was that there was thinking that there was insufficient attention paid to factors such as emotion, power and politics in organisational decision making and action. I think the form that interests me at the moment um, is self-managed action learning because I'm looking at its use with UK social workers at the moment. So it's very much in my mind. Um, some colleagues at Brighton University, people like Tom Borner, uh, did some interesting work on self-managed action learning and got the whole of the West Coast of Ireland Health Board doing this sort of self-managed approach. And they uh, called it an innovation in practice. But really, I suppose you could say it goes back to first principles. It goes back to, to Revan's ideas. 
Um, so what they did at Brighton was to, to, to some extent, to de-emphasize the role of the facilitator and rather emphasize the skills of set members and they trained people accordingly. But in fact, there still was a facilitator role. It probably rotated around the set and it still does. So um, unlike some other forms of action learning, that actually does strengthen that key principle uh, of, uh, of action learning that, uh, that Revens initiated, this idea that there should be an induction, there should be some training, and then people should be let loose uh, to manage the process for themselves. When you were talking about how action learning works, you stress the significance of the task or the problem. And, and so it feels like the problem's a critical piece to action learning. And presumably not all problems are well suited. So what is it about a problem that makes it a candidate for action learning? The requirement for an action learning problem is that it should matter. Uh, it should be important. Uh, I think Michael Marquardt says it should be urgent and important. Revens distinguishes between problems and puzzles himself in a lot of his writing. So for him, puzzles are difficulties which, which have a solution and it can be quite easy to find, such as the best way of reducing time or cost spent on some particular activity. So um, for, for it to be useful for action, in action learning terms, there shouldn't be an easily accessible solution, which you could find the answer to in a book or an organisational procedural guide, or you could go to a colleague and just say, here's my problem, what's the answer? So just to sort of give you some examples from my, my own practice from when I worked in the NHS, they're usually issues that are expressed by the problem owner in the form of a how do I kind of question. So the kinds of things we used to look at in uh, action learning sets in the National Health Service were things like how do I develop a nurse led asthma service? How do I go about merging two hospital departments based on two different sites that have got radically different sets of working practices? How do I go about rationalising children's services? So these are things you couldn't go to a book and find a set of easy, easy solutions or answers to. And some of them were bound up with what might be called personal development issues as well. So out of some of these problems would come, you know, uh, the, the manage, managing people type difficulties and issues. How do I manage these, these problem people or these problem circumstances? Um, you know, so in the case of merging two hospital departments, you know, there, there's there are all the sort of people issues. And that was actually um, an interesting problem in itself because it was, you know, two hospitals five miles apart. One had a, a very long history. It was said that Florence Nightingale walked the wards. It was a teaching hospital. It was attached to the university. The other hospital site was very modern, much more up to date, you know, different kinds of practices altogether. So there are all these sort of people issues and people were clinging to practices because this is the way we've always done it. So it's very, very complex. So the, the evaluation of follow up work is always interesting because often the impact goes beyond a particular set. Revens himself wrote about this outward from set to community. So we were able to point to some fairly concrete outcomes from some of this work on, on problems. Cost savings, using agency staff less on wards, better continuity of care, uh, spread of a practice that's shown to work uh, onto other wards and departments. And then there were the personal development gains. So it's not just about working on a problem, it's the personal learning and development as well. Um, and what fascinated me so much was people saying things like, I'm much more politically aware of how issues uh, related to a comparatively small project 
like mine can impact on the strategic direction of the trust. So people were learning about themselves, they were learning about the organisation, uh, they were learning to network, there were all sorts of other things, and they were reflecting on how they um, operated as managers. So it's this important aspect of a problem having all these facets of, in terms of learning and reflection. It's not just about problem solving and it's not a talking shop. If it's that, it doesn't work. It's not action learning. In your answers, you've talked about action learning being used in multiple sectors, including in academia. And I was wondering if you found that there are specific issues that academics face in using action learning. I, I probably do now uh, more of my action learning work as a university lecturer than anything else uh, at, at present. Um, in the recent past, I've been using action learning with degree apprentices, and these are people who are working full time and doing a degree uh, alongside. Uh, so they're often experienced managers and professionals who work in various private and public sector organisations. And they've often been away from formal education for a while. And I found action learning works very nicely with this particular group of people because they've got real current projects and problems to work on. And they've got significant and current work experience to draw on and share with others. So I think it was last year, Mike Pedler and myself, we, we did some research on academics using action learning. It was only a small qualitative study, but um, we thought it was an important thing to look at because governments in the UK and elsewhere had been calling on universities to develop management and leadership skill sets and to educate for practice, not just about practice. So we talked with educators and we found widely differing experiences in the various institutions ranging from wholehearted support from those institutions through to some considerable scepticism and even resistance. And part of the resistance seemed to come from people viewing it as atheoretical. And that was a, a charge originating in Revan's championing of questioning over inputs of learning, the P, the programmed instruction, in the context of complex problems. Most of the people we spoke to who were using it were people who expressed preferences for learner-centered approaches where the students determine the curricula in whole or in part. So they determine the problems or the, or the projects that they were going to work on. Without exception, uh, the people we spoke to saw facilitation as important. Most were pretty well aware of Revan's reservations about uh, what he called the hankering of the teacher to be the centre of attention. Um, but they all felt that one of the chief responsibilities of higher education facilitate, facilitators was to ensure that there were learning possibilities for everyone. Something else interesting that we found is that we saw new and distinct ways of working with action learning were emerging, even in our final interviews, uh, which sort of mirrors really what Yuri Boschik was talking about in terms of all those, those different varieties of action learning that were out there. And what we drew from that, what we concluded was that varieties in practice seem to come about through different personal and professional points of origin. So a practitioner with a mental health background, for example, is likely to operate differently from one who's got an HR background, has been an HR manager. So individual practices, um, we felt, were developed on the basis of these sorts of experiences and a myriad of other personal characteristics. And then um, in terms of optimism for the use of action learning in HE, we found that action learning offered some considerable advantages over some of the more expository methods. Firstly, um, action learning is, is notably engaging for people, particularly in the context of part-time and post-experience programmes and master's degree programmes, and that was certainly my experience. 
And then it, it also allows for the integration of teaching with application to current challenges or issues. And that's certainly what I found in my more recent work uh, with degree apprentices. So it allows for some flexibility. So it's, it's a very flexible methodology. It can work virtually. Uh, it can work in terms of uh, self-facilitation. So you can, you can train people up as the Brighton people did. It doesn't necessarily have to be labour intensive. We did wonder if assessment might be a problem in HE, but that didn't seem to be the case either. Uh, it creates opportunities to gather evidence of social and organisational impact. And of course, it, it allows for some emphasis on reflection and learning from reflection. Uh, what did I do? What did I learn from what I did? What would I do differently next time? From your answer there, it, it sounds like action learning is a really powerful approach to both solving problems and facilitating learning. What do you think it is about action learning that makes it so powerful? I thought about this a lot. I mean, my initial introduction to it that I described, you know, way back in the mid 90s was I was just struck by, you know, the emphasis placed on questions um, and how powerful that is. I know Michael Marquardt's also written extensively about this power of questions. Revens did some interesting experiments. He did a, a very interesting experiment back in the no early 1960s when he looked at mathematics lessons uh, in uh, schools across Manchester and he filmed them. He filmed these lessons. And what struck him was how little time was given over to the opportunity to ask questions. Um, and that, that struck me. Uh, he wrote a, a book uh, that was published ooh, oh, well over 40 years ago now, um, uh, Action Learning, New Techniques for Management. And he begins one chapter with the clever man will tell you what he knows. He may even try to explain it to you. The wise man encourages you to discover it for yourself. Since he seems to give you nothing, we have no need to reward him. Uh, and then Revens ends this with thus the wise have disappeared and we are left in a desolation of the clever. And I think that's an instructive little homily, because for me, uh, as I say, action learning is about this power of, of asking questions and repeatedly asking questions. Sometimes the problem that people bring to action learning sets isn't the problem that people end up working on. And it's only through questioning that you discover, ah, there's more to this problem or this isn't the problem I, I think it is. Or actually, this isn't the problem that we should be working on. And so questions are the engine of learning. And that is, for me, what gives action learning its power and its enduring impact. Well, Cheryl, unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time for our one-to-one -one conversation, but thank you so much indeed. I, I've really enjoyed our discussion on action learning today. Thank you very much. Well, please stay with us, and we'll have you back later in the episode for our conversation with Mike. But until then, thank you so much indeed. Up next, we have the group discussion, where my guests are together to discuss their shared passion for the episode's topic. This discussion is brought to you thanks to the sponsorship support of WILE, the World Institute for Action Learning. WILE Action Learning has established itself as the method of choice for global companies, government agencies, and non-profit groups that want to improve performance and culture in the organization. From Boston to Brazil, Finland to Tokyo, Wiles client companies include Google, Samsung, AirAsia, Caribbean Central Bank, Novartis, BMP Paribas, and New York Public Library. 
while also partners with the International Federation of Red Cross and 31 national societies are actively using this powerful methodology to positively impact the communities they serve. Get in touch with WILE today. You can find out more details at their website, www.wial.org. Welcome back to the HRD Masterclass. Our focus for this episode is action learning. I've already met one-to-one with Mike Marquardt and with Cheryl Brooke, and for the final section of the episode, we're all together for our group chat. So welcome back, Mike and Cheryl. What's great to be back. Yep, great to be here. So for our group discussion, I'd like to expand a little on some of the topics that we explored in our one-to-ones, starting with the question of how to implement action learning in an organization. So specifically, if an organization hasn't used action learning before, how would you recommend they go about introducing it? Well, uh, it's a very good question. Um, Mike Pedler has a, a very nice chapter in his very practical little book, which was written for managers called Action Learning for Managers, which simply asks, will it work in my organization? And, and Mike Marquardt, of course, has a very useful chapter on introducing and sustaining action learning in his book on optimizing the power of action learning. For me, in my experience, the starting point is support and commitment from the top. Revan's as ever, had a a lovely little aphorism, a lovely little phrase to support this. And he said that doubt ascending speeds wisdom from above. In other words, good questions actually help to make for better decision-making in organizations. So uh, a question might be then, does the idea and the practice of action learning actually fit with where the organization is at the present time? Now, in some organizations, I think this can be a little bit problematic, but I think it can be overcome Pedler has a nice sort of antidote to Revan's statement about uh, doubt ascending speeds wisdom from above by saying, well, in some organisations, in fact, doubt ascending speeds retribution from above. So Pedler asks questions such as, are people ready uh, for action learning? Are they uh, encouraged to take more initiatives? Do they, uh, are they allowed to take qualified risks? Uh, are they allowed to tackle their complex problems? And I think as we've already established, Action learning requires significant organisational problems to work with, not puzzles, and people willing to have a go at action and learning with all the implications that come with that. I think it needs energy and commitment to set it up and to maintain it for however long it's going to be maintained. And if an organisation has those things and that willingness, I would certainly suggest putting in place some kind of induction programme to give people a taste of what action learning involves and how it's used. And then of course, the organization needs to decide if it wants external help or if it wants to train internal facilitators. And if people are going to be facilitators or coaches, they need to have experience of action learning. Uh, I always said to people that you really need to be part of an action learning set yourself. You need to experience it. You need to know what it's about at first hand because they're not there as we've really previously established to be experts or sages. And they're there to foster independence, not dependence. And then organizations need to allow uh, people the opportunity to give it a good go, making sure that people do really genuinely lead with questions. So in our conversations, the terms action learning facilitator or action learning coach has cropped up several times. I'm wondering what you see as the role of that person. What role do they actually play within action learning? 
the action learning coach or facilitator is a very critical role in action learning. And it probably is a key factor that distinguishes an action learning group from any other type of problem solving group. Uh, because the action learning coach or facilitator is there primarily or solely to help the group to learn, to ask questions that enable that group to become smarter, uh, work more effectively together. And generally the facilitator or coach is not involved in solving the problem because that would perhaps, I think, uh, lessen the effect of the action learning coach. The coach is seen as a person maybe with more expertise or more you know, authority or power. So it's important that the coach does not get involved in solving the problem. And that's why Reg Revan, when he first developed action learning, he said it was very important to not be a person in the group who immobilizes, who has expertise on the problem and the strategies and mobilizes the rest of the group. So it's very important that the coach or facilitator is there solely to help that group become a smarter group and to learn. And the power of learning, I like to also give the example of a typical problem solving group, they learn how to add. You know, two plus two is four, plus two is six. And so if the problem solving group is facing a problem, let's say is equal to the number 1000, and they can only add what well, they can probably solve that problem in, in an hour or so. But let's say the problem that the problem solving group is working on is the number 1 billion. And if you could only add two plus two, it would take you 30 years to reach the number 1 billion. But in action learning with the help of the coach, a facilitator, the group learns how to multiply. And they can do two times two is four, times two is eight, times two is 16. And they can solve or reach this 1 billion number in less than three minutes. So you go from 30 years to three minutes if a group can multiply. And I think that dramatizes how the power of the action learning coach enables the group to get smarter, to work more effectively together, and to be sure that the learning occurs. Now, both uh, Cheryl and I have had experiences where we worked with groups that did not have facilitators or coaches or did. And our experience is that the, the group that has a coach or facilitator always does better. They learn more, they eventually work more effectively together, their strategies are, are better, they get to the solutions or strategies more quickly. And we have found that even if a group has worked with a coach or facilitator for two or three sessions and then the coach is absent, the group starts losing the power it had before. Because unless there's a person within the group who is designated as being responsible for the learning to help the group learn, be sure that the group achieves its objectives at an agreed upon time period, uh, the group tends to revert back to not learning, not taking the time to learn. And there's resentment if a, a person assumes that role within the group. So we have found that it's always wise, even though a group has met three or four or five times, it's good to have someone in the group who is responsible for the learning and so that the group takes the time. We know that uh, action is oftentimes very urgent. And we've heard this axiom about that the uh, urgency of the moment drives out the importance of learning. So uh, if you don't have a coach, the group tends to focus only on action. And it's really not an action learning group anymore. It's a problem solving action group as opposed to a problem solving action learning group. So I think for both Cheryl and I and people in the field, they recognize that having a coach or facilitator is very essential for the short-term as well as long-term benefit of the group. Not only, and also 
the learning that occurs during the group and a coach or facilitator enables that learning to be applied uh, to other parts of the organization and encouraging and enabling the group members to apply that learning elsewhere. I do agree with uh, with Mike about the, the role of the of the coach or the facilitator and that it does make a difference in terms of sets being able to, to be more effective. And I also think that most people now, I think, involved in action learning would accept that good facilitation helps to make an action learning set or group successful, even though Revens did see this initially limited role for the facilitator. So given the significance of the role, what do you see as the qualities of a, a good action learning facilitator or coach? Well, I think probably the most important skill or role is and mindset is that the coach has to be committed to learning, helping the group learn. They have to see that that is the primary value that he or she provides to enable the group to learn, to keep improving how they ask questions, how they work as a team how they develop their, their leadership skills as they work together. And so I think a mindset of helping the group learn, trusting that the group can be successful, will be successful as long as the coach does his or her role. And to me, I see the coach as kind of a model of leadership, uh, two types of leadership. Many of us have heard of the, the concept of a servant leader. And that's what the, the facilitator does. You know, she's trying to do everything she can to help the group be successful in every way and, and does whatever kind of uh, activities behind the scenes work during the session, encouragement, you know, cheerleading, whatever is necessary to help that group succeed. The other, I think, type of leadership is that the action learning facilitator uh, models is what we call uh, level five leadership that Jim Collins talked about in his books. And this is a leader considered the best of all leaders, according to Jim Collins. And this leader has two very strong characteristics. One is that the person is very humble. And second, that he or she does everything she can to help the group be a success. They're dedicated and fully committed to helping the group succeed. The coach also has to be a very good listener to be able to see what's going on, what's being said and not being said. Uh, to ask the right questions and enable the group to make progress. Uh, they have to be courageous sometimes because there may be some dysfunctionality occurring in the group or some person may be attacking another member of the group intentionally or unintentionally. And the coach has to have the courage to you know, lean forward and ask a question to help the people see what's going on and make the, the chaining, changes and learning that's necessary. So they have to have, be courageous, patient, they have to be committed to the success of the not only the group itself, but the, the group within their lives. And uh, whenever I work and coach with an action learning group, I see it as an opportunity not only to help them learn for this particular occasion to, on this problem or strategy, but develop the skills and, and mindset that will help them for the rest of their lives. So if that's what um, essentially determines what makes a good action learning facilitator or coach i'm now wondering about the rest of the action learning set so how do you determine the right people to be a, a part of that action learning set well uh, first and foremost they have to have a substantial problem that they want to work on Revens spoke about the menace of urgent problems or the lure of enticing opportunities because these are the kinds of things that are most likely to reinforce a desire to learn 
And then it helps if there is some kind of penalty for failure, actually. The problem should matter. Uh, Revan's called this the risk imperative. He launched an attack on what he called non-risk exercises. And he rather unfairly, I think, he singled out the case method for particular disapproval. But really what he was emphasising was the opportunity for learning that comes from tackling real, urgent, current and important concerns. He also said they had to be volunteers. Revan said that one learns or changes one behaviour of one's own volition and not the, at the behest of others, unless you're under duress or bribery or something of that sort, which, of course, are not inspirations to learning in the sense that Revan's was implying. Um, but I've been involved with, with sets that have had people who were suggested, as well as those who were self-selecting, and that's worked. They need to be people who are prepared to commit for the duration of the action learning process. I think SETs need regular members who try hard to attend all the meetings, uh, which focus on members' problems and tasks, the, the vehicle uh, for action and learning, which form the agenda for the SET. So there has to be that commitment. So they have to be people who are able to, to set their own curriculum. It's great also if you can achieve diversity in terms of membership, because then you really open things up. You open up opportunities for fresh perspectives. Um, some of the best sets I've been involved with have, have had a good, rich mix of people for whom some of the problems that are brought to the set are completely new and the context is unfamiliar. And, and Revens wrote about this as well. Um, so, for example, when I worked in the health service and I did a lot of action learning there, uh, we made sure we had a mix of grades, a mix of clinicians and professional managers and administrators, a mix in terms of length of service. And even external people, such as service users, patients, uh, social services, people outside the NHS trust and so on. And Revens himself modelled this kind of diversity of, of approach with some of the projects he did, particularly with um, uh, what we call now learning disability services back in the in the 1970s. So the lessons, again, come from Revens. But I do think that diversity and richness help to open things up so that you don't fall into the danger of groupthink. Okay, so if we have an action learning set that are work that's working on a problem, when I think about problems, like some problems end up being fixed quite quickly and some never get solved. So I'm wondering how long, ideally, an action learning set would typically work on a problem. Well, I think the, the length of time that the group spends on a problem depends upon the problem or project. Sometimes an action learning group is given an urgent problem uh, to crisis. And it might be a safety issue. It might be uh, some kind of marketing issue. And they have to provide an action strategy within two hours or four hours to the person who's responsible for implementing some action. And so occasionally uh, an action learning project, it only has two hours, the group meet one time and their strategies are developed and submitted. More typically and, and better uh, is the opportunity where you have a complex problem in which the group has more time to reflect on it. Because there's oftentimes when you have a problem, you do not have all the information, all the resources, all the power you need when, within the group. So you have to, between sessions, gather information, get support for ideas, check out different uh, resources. And so, and also you have time to reflect on some of the questions that emerge in session number one or session two. So typically uh, an action learning group works maybe three times, three to four times uh, on a uh, 
problem over you know one or two month period. I have a formula that I think works well with us is that if a problem is really urgent, you should take no more than four months to have it completed in terms of that the group has made its recommendation decisions. And that generally uh, you, you meet no more than four times. Again, I really want to emphasize what Cheryl mentioned. It's important that every member be present at all four sessions of those four sessions, because we all know what happens if someone misses one session. Uh, the decisions have to be revisited and uh, energy is lost. So it's better that they, everybody changes their schedule at all. I'd rather have all six people together for three meetings than four of the five or six people together for 10 meetings. It's that, that's that important. And then I think typically an action learning session uh, should not last more than four hours because by, by three or four hours, you've come up with all the ideas, strategies, steps that can be taken within the group. And now the group has to individually or in pairs implement some of the actions or ideas or information uh, collecting that they have to do. So, uh, so it depends upon the problem, uh, depends on the situation, but I think uh, you wanna maintain the urgency and, uh, but don't wear out the people by too long or too many sessions. So when does an action learning set stop work? Is it when they've found a solution to the problem or would an action learning set actually be part of implementing the solution? I think different approaches to action learning probably treat the question slightly differently. Some sets do find solutions fairly rapidly and because they have some skin in the game, they have decision-making powers. The people in the sets or the groups have decision-making powers. They can implement a solution and then they can indeed stop there. If you're trying to tackle um, what's sometimes called a wicked problem, by which we mean a really almost intractable, complex, ill-structured problem that crosses organisational boundaries and almost defies resolution, Sometimes the best you can do is chip away at the problem. And in some cases, you may never actually reach a completely satisfactory resolution or the problem changes shape or becomes something different to that originally envisioned. An example of that might what might be called a wicked problem um, I've got from working with UK social workers, uh, which is one in which involved clients who were at the centre of complex and sometimes quite conflicting interventions from all kinds of different agencies, mental health services, prison service, education, housing, social services, and so on and so forth. In that particular case, there was no completely satisfactory resolution, but part of the problem had been treated. The key thing, whichever approach you take, is that you ensure that learning has a central part of the way the, the set or the group does its work. It must be central. Um, Peddler, Mike Peddler offers a practical way of doing this by inviting people at the end of set meetings to well publicly reflect on what they've learned about their problem, what they've learned about others' problems, what they've learned about themselves and what actions they intend to take next. Um, I think it's important that um, an action learning set doesn't outlive uh, the, the problem, the original problem. Sometimes people get quite cosy with each other and then it can descend into a talking shop rather than an action learning group. So there again, coming back to Mike's points, it's the skill of the facilitator in um, ensuring that the, the set does what it, it's intended to do and that it doesn't just descend into a cosy, you know, let's have coffee and a chat. That's not what action learning is about. If I may add, uh, a group should know immediately up front whether they will be only developing strategies and then submitting those strategies to an executive council or to a, uh, a manager who's not going to be present in the group, 
or whether they will be not only creating the strategies, but be responsible for implementing that. Many action learning groups, perhaps the majority of action learning groups, their responsibility is to develop a strategy action because this is a very complex, urgent problem that requires maybe hundreds of people throughout the organization to implement the strategy. So the action learning group does not have the resources or group power to do it. And they know up front that their task is within three months, they're going to present to the executive council or the CEO of the organization. Here are the actions that we recommend that you take. And that also points out some action learning groups, the, the problem presenter or problem owner is also the presenter. Uh, some, they, it's delegated. They, they might receive a portfolio saying, here's the urgent problem the organization is facing. Uh, you're the action learning team. In three months, we want to receive a report from you. And so the other interesting thing, oftentimes when the group has finished, they not only develop, the, uh, present their strategies to the senior people within the organization, but they also have to present what they've learned and how what they've learned can be applied to other parts of the organization. So I'm assuming it's typical that an action learning set is is operating within an organization. And so I'm wondering how important it is that action learning has a supportive learning culture within that organization, or alternatively, whether action learning can be successful in cultures that are otherwise less supportive of learning and development. I think uh, organizations can have great action learning programs, even though they're not, may not be an action learning culture or a learning culture in the organization. The reason that the organization gives an urgent complex problem to an action learning group is that they don't have an action or strategy in their own minds. And they're looking for some creative way to come up with a new breakthrough strategy. And so they turn it over to an action learning group because they've heard that this group can more quickly and more creatively uh, and more systematically solve an urgent, complex, wicked problem that they have. And so uh, the important thing is that when you go into an action learning group, that no matter what the culture of the organization is, once you're inside the action learning group, it has its own culture, and it's very much a, a, a learning culture because of the, the recognition that when they come into the group, there's a person responsible to help them learn. They're told that they're going to be opportunity to share their learning. They're expected to learn. They're here to develop their leadership skills as well as solve the problem. As a matter of fact, a, a majority, probably more action learning uh, groups are created for the purpose of developing the leadership skills of the group than to solve the problem. I think Cheryl and I and anybody in action learning realizes that the more urgent the problem is, the more leadership skills will be developed and so forth. But uh, organizations use action learning to develop their leadership skills of their people. And so a lot of high potentials are put into action learning groups. They know they have to build better teams as well as get a problem solved. And that's the, the power of action learning does all of these things simultaneously. Uh, but the culture of action learning is one in which learning occurred. And the intent is that when the group individual members leave the group, uh, they go back into their organization. And if it's a learning culture, it's more easily for them to practice what they learned in the action learning group. But the, the culture around them is not so much one of learning. Uh, the expectation hope would be that these individuals who participate in the action learning group who have now recognized the value and importance and benefit of learning will start encouraging learning around themselves and they will ask more questions and they will uh, uh, encourage other people in the organization to look at how we can learn that we have to become more of a learning organization uh, uh, in general uh, to be successful. 
So I think uh, the culture within the action learning group is, is very strongly a learning and, and hopefully uh, it can permeate the rest of the organization. Uh, but my experience has been that many organizations have turned in, turned to action learning for help, not because they want to become learning organizations, but because they want to get this wicked problem solved. And they recognize that perhaps an action learning group is going to be the most creative and best way to do that. Yeah, I, I, I think that it is important that there is a supportive learning culture within an organization for some of the reasons we've already spoken about. But to go back to Revan's idea that doubt ascending speeds wisdom from above, the obvious question to ask in an organization is, well, does it? Uh, we have to be honest, there are organizations in which the questioning of top management plans and decisions can be a distinctly career limiting thing to do. Um, one of the main contributions, and this is this is again where I agree with Mike, that action learning can make to an organization is that it can actually help to develop a, a culture of inquiry, of questioning insight. Uh, and some have indeed argued that it can help to create a learning organization. Having said all that, I have been myself part of action learning sets in organizations that were not as healthy and open as one might have liked. And in those kinds of circumstances, like uh, as, as Mike says, I found action learning has created a, a safe space for people to work on problems and learn from their attempts to make real changes in practice. And once people, whatever level they are in the organization, see that it works, then there it sells itself. So the essence of action learning really, to borrow from the American pragmatist, is about making a difference to practice. And once people see that it does make a difference to practice, then I think it, it's, it's sold in an organization. Well, unfortunately, we've reached the end of our time for today. I wanted to say a big thank you to both of you for all of the time that you've put into the episode and for all of our conversations. Thank you so much for being a part of our discussion on action learning. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. It was wonderful spending time with Mike and with Cheryl. If you enjoyed this episode, check out all of our others. There are 11 episodes in Series 1, and we're releasing a further 11 here in Series 2. And between them, they provide access to conversations with over 50 leading HRD scholars. New episodes release weekly. To learn more about the series, check out hrdmasterclass.com. And to learn about the Academy of Human Resource Development, check out ahrd.org. By becoming a member, you can access extra bonus materials not included in the podcast. Also, don't forget to look into our sponsor, the World Institute for Action Learning, by visiting their website at www.wial.org. I'm looking forward to being with you in our next episode. Until then, this is Darren Short signing off from the HRD Masterclass. HRD Masterclass podcast is brought to you by the Academy of Human Resource Development and is a production of allbypodcast.com.